2: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Joanne Lee Molinaro was a high-powered lawyer with a prestigious firm in Chicago. Then early in the pandemic, she became a star on the social video app TikTok, where She shares vegan recipes, techniques, and stories about food to her followers, who now number nearly three million. Writing her cookbook, Korean Vegan, brought Molinaro an even deeper connection with her family and heritage, as we'll hear later in the program. First... Since the 1970s, artists from diverse backgrounds have found peace and productivity in residencies at the Hambidge Center for Creative Arts and Sciences. The Hambidge Residency continues to this day at the secluded retreat in Rabin Gap in North Georgia. A new chapter for the setter is underway that will include new facilities and workshops. Joining me now via Zoom to tell us more are Hamage Executive Director Jamie Badood, and Deputy Director Ife Williams. Welcome to City Lights.
1: Thank you so much for having us.
3: Thank you. Happy to be here. The Hambage
2: Artists Residency Program has been hosting creators from many fields since the 1970s, musicians, painters, photographers, as well as those in the sciences. Who are some notable figures who've spent time in residency there?
1: Yes, thank you. We're fortunate to have many well-known artists. Just to share a few, Radcliffe Bailey and Fahamu Piku are wonderful Atlanta artists. The musician Kebby Williams was recently in residence. T. Lang and Lori Stallings are dancers who that have been residents. Writers have included Natasha Treadway and even Gregory Maguire, the author of Wicked as well as John T. Edge was recently in residence. Culinary, our chefs include Stephen Satterfield and Edna Lewis and Scott Peacock wrote their famous Southern cookbook at Hambidge. And fiber artist and designer Natalie Channon was there just a few years ago.
2: I read there's no Wi-Fi at the individual studios on campus and there's no cell phone service at Hambidge. How does the time unplugged help residents to be more creative?
1: We're really fortunate because it it certainly helps. And I think many of us have learned, even the pandemic, you know, how much noise there is in the world. And so to find yourself in a place where some of that noise dissipates. And nature kind of inspires you in different ways, really allows the creative mind to find a new rhythm and really welcome the creative voice inside you to come out. Ife, do you want to share a little bit about that as well?
3: As a person who has relocated to our campus and lived with no cell coverage every day, <laughs> I know that it changes the way you get in your car and drive around when you have to go off campus because you have enough time to forget that you plan to do six things. You just focus on what's around you, and it really it does connect you better to
2: your the people who are here with you. Without Wi-Fi, though, can you do your administrative work?
3: So we don't have Wi-Fi in the studios, but we do have a common space where artists can come and check Wi-Fi, which can sometimes build more community because they come down to get their little fix. Um, (laughs) And then in the offices, we do have Wi-Fi. And I have Wi-Fi at home.
2: I would think so. Can you give us a brief history of Hambridge and how it was established?
1: Happy to. And this is one that we're really proud that a documentary was created around Mary Hambidge, our founder, who was an incredible weaver, whistler and visionary who believed that nature was best nurtured in creativity and initially welcomed weavers to the property and started having a number of weavers who contributed amazing works that were then sold on Madison Avenue in New York in a store that uh, Mary Hambidge established and was quite successful for over 20 years, where famous individuals like Greta Garbo and Jackie Gleason purchased uh, textiles. Textiles were even included in Truman's yacht. And the textiles found their way into the Smithsonian and the MoMA. And it was later when... Mary Hambidge started welcoming and inviting artists to the property and broaden the scope of individuals to create on the property. Uh, It wasn't until her death in 1973 when that um, welcoming of residents was truly formalized as a residency program as it is today.
2: What were these textiles that women in nearby towns were creating? Were they like the geese Bend
1: quilts? They were a variety of textiles, everything from if you wanted curtains or you could come to make orders. But, But Mary was also a clothing designer and costume designer. So she was quite quite prolific in a lot of the designs that she, she would create as well. So she would create coats and scarves and a wide variety of things. And the majority of all of those works are now in the Atlanta History Museum. And
2: what about the local women in textiles whose works were being shown on Madison Avenue? What, what style or styles were those creations?
1: The style, I think, included everything from ties to handkerchiefs to dresses. It really included a wide variety of opportunities for someone to enter this shop. But I think it was also a time when there was a real attraction to the, the craft. And I think I would just want to speak to it was widely respected that some of the finest textiles in the world were coming right from those North Georgia mountains. And some of that started with Mary Hambidge winning the gold prize in weaving in the Paris World's Fair in 1937. And she really trained and worked, worked a great deal with all of the young women in the mountains to hone their craft and put a lot of detail into all of the craft. It's important to also note this was a fully sustainable farm where Mary was raising the sheep, shearing the sheep, dyeing the wool, and then having the the works the textiles created so something that's very sought after today here Mary Hambidge was doing that many, many years ago
3: and and she was a weaver it, they were all the weavers of Raven county
1: okay,
2: yeah, I think that's what i I was just trying to picture were these wall hangings, textiles that the weavers of Rabin County were creating.
3: They were, yeah, everything was based on extremely bright and vibrant dyes that Mary was making to sort of pull colors out of the nature and the flowers around. And then everything was woven. So the, the clothing was fiber that they were weaving and then creating costumes. But weaving was the base of it all.
2: I see. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with Jamie Badood and Ife Williams from the Hambage Center for Creative Arts and Sciences. What is the selection process for the residents?
1: We have eight different areas where folks can apply. Within each group, there are three jurors, and the jurors just score each application. And we select the top scores. Quickly, I'll share that it's music, dance, writing, culinary, ceramic arts, arts leaders, and cultural administrators. We're really proud about that. That's something new that we've added. Have I forgotten anything? Eva? You
3: forgot visual arts and <laughs> science.
2: There
1: you go. Aha.
2: What sort of science residencies have there been?
1: I would say that the science is the least participatory, but they're almost the most interesting sometimes, as you can imagine. When we're when the artists are around the dinner table, it's always interesting to have a scientist around the dinner table for conversation. And we've seen scientists, everything from environmentalists, ecologists, biologists, folks that come through CDC, it's really been a wide variety of the sciences that we've seen come through. Is there anything that you could add to that, Yifei?
3: I think that my most fun scientist was the etymologist who was just excited about all the different types of creatures that often people get, I would say, not excited about. (laughs)
1: So he he was
3: loving finding every variety of bug that he could find. And then it's interesting to see how those scientists, the biologists, or chemists interact with the artists at the dinner table and discover that even though they're here for science, they have creative approaches and they have just as much to share as the artists do between each other. And it's interesting just to see how those different all of the categories get to understand how similar they are, even though there's a lot of things that between disciplines you just don't understand until you get to talk to someone up close. But they realize they're not so different.
2: Indeed, because it's all about creativity. It's just different sides of the brain, I guess. What can you tell us about the new Antonori Village expansion?
1: The Antinori Village expansion is going to be really transformational for Hambage. We've been nurturing creativity for many, many years with small groups of artists. And this will allow us to really shift to a much broader constituency and welcome the public to experience the Hambage magic that happens every day with the residency program. And we modeled the growth, of this new village after a lot of the aspects that we've really come to appreciate that work so well with Hambage. Number one, it's an intimate community, just eight individuals, the perfect number that fit around a dinner table. And so in the residency program, they spend their days in seclusion, really diving into their work and then come together in the evening and share. The village will be much more intentional in the time together, so it'll be a collaborative experience coming together to learn something or do something with a greater intention. The workshops, you'll come together, they'll just be eight individuals, whether you're learning how to bake a pie or write a song or write a a new poem. They're really going to celebrate all of these creative disciplines that Hambage nurtures, in the shape of workshops. And those workshops could be anywhere from a weekend to a week or two weeks. And that's really exciting for us as we think about how we can broaden the work that we do as an organization, which is really centered in just nurturing creativity. On the residency side, it nurtures creativity with a a sheer appreciation of the creative process and with a a radical freedom. You can come to Hambage as an artist and do whatever you feel is necessary for you at that particular time. Now, we've come to learn that often that includes wellness or just time, taking time for yourself. And so we really push the residents to take time for themselves and not feel so much weight on being productive as much as kind of looking inward. And We'll take a similar approach to the space for the village, while at the same time, really being thoughtful about leaving with something new. And that's exciting for us as we can just broaden how we look at the work that we're doing with two bookends, one with a radical freedom provided to some of the the most finest and interesting artists doing work today, with a new bookend to really share some of that creative genius with the broader community.
2: So how will the public engage with Hambage in the new Antonori Village? Is the public, without necessarily being established artists, looking for rest and safe?
1: Yes. So we will soon uh, launch our workshop series. And so the public will have an opportunity to sign up for these different workshops and they'll be going on throughout the year. And again, they're going to be smaller workshops uh, with just eight individuals at the most, but they'll also have the opportunity to stay on the property. And that's what is really exciting and new. We're building these new structures and we've done workshops in the past but people would have to drive down the road and stay into a hotel. And what, we're, what we've always heard the feedback to include is nobody wants to leave Hambridge property once they step onto the property. And it really takes away from this immersive experience when you do have to leave and enter the, the, the real world as, as some uh, refer to it, right? And so just being able to stay on the property in a wonderful landscape that is really built to nurture your experience is going to be transformational for the organization and for the individuals who get to experience it.
2: And Ife, am I correct that your position was created in part to help facilitate with this Hambidge 2.0, as it's being called?
3: Yes, I have been tasked with Helping get the initial programming underway, connecting with artists who will, you know, grab attention and share great things with community members, and also putting together and developing some of our first collaborative residencies. Our first residency will be cooking and clay.
2: Oh, this sounds so exciting. When do you expect to break ground on construction of the Antonori Village?
3: Antinori Village is actually in process. We're hoping to finish construction this fall. So we're hoping to have workshops as early as late October, early November. We're about halfway into the construction phase.
2: Jamie Badude, executive director of the Hambidge Center for Creative Arts and Sciences, and deputy director, Ife Williams, You can find out more about the new Antinori Village Project on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, we'll continue our celebration of Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month and discuss Joanne Lee Molinaro's cookbook, The Korean Vegan, amplifying at this is W A B E This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for being here. In her book, The Korean Vegan, Joanne Lee Molinaro writes, As children of war, scarcity and hunger were embedded in my parents' bones long before I began to complain about our lack of McDonald's at the dinner table. As a result, talking was discouraged. We didn't spill our guts during dinner, we filled them. Joanne Lee Molinaro has long overcome her desire for American fast food. She celebrates her heritage and its cuisine on TikTok, and now with her new cookbook, The author joins us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. And what a beautiful introduction.
2: Well, you provided the inspiration, (laughs) I must say. You are a lawyer by training, Joanne. When did you start sharing recipes on TikTok?
0: Well, I didn't start sharing recipes on TikTok until last summer. You know, we were in the middle of quarantine and I was working like a, you know, like a crazy lady around the clock. But notwithstanding how busy I was, there was so much anxiety sort of fueling my everyday I downloaded this app called TikTok that I barely knew anything about, mostly as a way to distract myself from everything that was happening in the world. And before I knew it, I was inspired to share cooking videos, just like so many other people were on TikTok. And that is how it all got started. I mean, largely by accident.
2: Okay. But now you have upwards of 2.7 million followers. This is phenomenal. (laughs) How did that hit you?
0: (laughs) Well, first of all, it was you know, it took far less than a year to get, you know, millions of followers. And that was surreal, astonishing, and overwhelming. Obviously, it was incredibly exciting. I had never experienced that kind of attention on the internet before. And I'd been blogging for many years. I would, you know, has been a blogger for four and a half years but never did any of my posts go, quote, viral before. And here I was where many of them were being viewed by you know, tens of millions of people. It was very exciting. So
2: what do you think it was about your TikToks that resonated with people so instantly? Well,
0: Lois, I think that there are a lot of things sort of going on at that time that i think facilitated the amplification of my videos number one we were, again we were all isolated we were all stuck you know in quarantine literally across the world so people were you know literally hungry for content and the kind of content that tended to bring people together in a virtual way, since we couldn't do so in a physical way. My content, in addition to being videos of me making food, which again was something that we could no longer do with each other physically, also provided stories. That was really what set my content apart from the vast majority of other food content. So while I was cooking, I would be talking about my mom and my dad, who, quite frankly, I missed a great deal because I couldn't see them very much during quarantine. Or I'd talk about you know, what it was like growing up as an Asian American in Chicago, or, you know, why I like this particular food that I'm making. And I think that what I was trying to recreate was that really special, intimate time that you often have in your kitchen with your mom or your dad or your family members or with your friends, or even sitting at a dinner table when you're having a dinner party with your closest group of friends. These are things we could no longer participate in. And I wanted to recreate that on TikTok. Hmm.
2: You speak powerfully about the emotional role of food in our lives. Would you give us some examples of that in your family history and your trajectory?
0: Yeah. Well, I think that there are some people who view food purely functionally. Like, I just need this food in order to live and survive. And I've never been that person. I love to eat, Lois. I don't know about you. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Food, I, I mean, the more varied, the more delicious. I love food. I get very excited about it. But there is also this emotional component to it. For my family, food was a way for particularly the women, you know, my mom, my grandmothers, and my aunts to show love. And affection. Love and affection is not easily shown in my family and particularly in my culture. It's not, we don't say, I love you. That's not, I don't think I've ever heard that from my mom. And, and it's more just here, I made you some kid on nutty. And in that way, she's showing her love for us. And because of that, throughout my childhood, these moments where we got together as a family to break bread together, to share food together, were some of the most loving moments in my memory. Because it was in that breaking of bread that there was this sort of implied communication of love, support, solidarity, understanding. And, you know, I remember specifically right after I had gotten my divorce. It was probably the lowest point in my entire life. And I remember my mom and my dad took us out to dinner because it was my birthday, just a few weeks after I had finalized my divorce. And I remember my father, while we were eating naengmyeon together, he you know, puts up his glass and he says, congratulations. And I thought he was congratulating me on my birthday, which I thought was very strange. And it turned out that he was congratulating me on my divorce. And that was such a powerful and emotional moment, and it's not a coincidence that it occurred while we were eating dinner together.
1: Oh,
2: yes. Just because people may not express their feelings outwardly, and I think this is especially true of older generations, certainly your grandparents' age, doesn't mean they don't have them. You write about that, and you spoke about it in one of the TikToks. That must have been a stunning moment for you when you realized how much support you had from your father about your previous marriage. Did you ask him why he hadn't spoken up sooner?
0: (laughs) Yeah, Lois, I mean, that's it. I think that that's sort of the natural question, and and just to give a little context, you know, my father, very typical of his generation, he we never talked about my feelings like that was not a subject that was comfortable between us. We hardly talked, to be honest. My father was very stoic. He did his job as as a dad. He you know earned money for us. He helped to pay the bills. He drove us around to soccer team and orchestra, you know, and even cooked on occasion for us when my mother was working late, but he didn't do any of the other dad things that you saw on TV, like in growing pains or family matters. And, and I think for a long time, I sort of resented him for not being that typical American dad that I thought, you know, prevailed across families across the United States. And, I had a very tough time with my first marriage and my father never said anything. And it hurt me for a long time. But when he said that at dinner, it was like all of the things that he didn't say were being injected into that one word, congratulations. And I didn't need anything after that. It was everything that I needed in that one word in that one moment. And That moment sort of changed the way I viewed my dad forever after that.
2: If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with Joanne Lee Molinaro, TikTok chef and author of The Korean Vegan. The subtitle of your book is Reflections and Recipes from Ama's Kitchen. Would you talk about your grandmother and her role in your life?
0: Oh, yes. So I had two very influential grandmothers in my life. My first one was uh, Seoul Harmoni. She was my mother's mother. And she immigrated to the United States first. And so she really, you know, raised me from when I was born to about when I was three years old. So some of my earliest memories as a child, they all involve my grandmother, my Soul Harmony. When I was three, my brother was born, my little brother, and that's when my Chin Harmony or my father's mother also immigrated to the United States, This is very traditional, you know, when your son has his son, then it's time to pick your, you know, pack your bags and, and go over there and help to raise him, which is what my chinharmoni did. <laughs> and so many of my memories, you know, as a toddler through all the way through high school, or very much about my harmony whether it was cooking food, uh, reading to me during bedtime, teaching me Bible stories, she was very religious, helping with cooking and you know, making sure I picked all of the vegetables from our backyard for her. She taught me so much. I mean, any anything from how to swing really, really fast to, you know, how to be a good student and how to obey my teachers and all of those things. And I think these are lessons that many people learn from their mom and dad. I learned from my grandmother.
2: I love the photo of her standing up on a swing in your backyard. That that was fantastic.
0: She taught me that.
2: (laughs) Not easy for some of us. No. (laughs) It was touching to learn that you felt self-conscious about the fact that foods in your household were not those advertised on television commercials or necessarily what you saw in the homes of friends you had. And specifically, you write about kimchi, the delicious Korean cabbage, marinated cabbage dish, which has a strong aroma, some might say pungent when did you overcome that self-consciousness?
0: Oh, wow, Lois. I feel like even today there's like a little bit of self-consciousness. Like, I don't know if I would be brave enough to bring kimchi with me to the office. Really? (laughs) Yes. I think, you know, I remember very clearly you know, certainly growing up as a little girl, like in kindergarten, even when I you know, crack open my lunchbox and realize it looks very, very different from everyone sitting around me, you know, as a five, six year old, of course, that's going to make you feel some sort of way. In high school, I think I became much braver. And I was like, you know what, I'm proud of my food. I like eating this food, and I'm just going to bring it. And also, you know, when you're in high school, like, there was no set time for me to eat lunch. It wasn't like I was eating lunch in the cafeteria anymore. I was in, you know, rehearsals and, you know, going from this activity to the next. So I was oftentimes eating in a hallway, you know, where nobody would see or smell. I remember in college and and by this time I thought that I'm, you know, I was majoring in Korean American studies. I was very proud of my heritage and it was during creative writing class I brought with me a tray of kimbap, which is a very traditional Korean dish, along with some kimchi as a side, and I was treating my entire creative writing class to a traditional Korean meal. I walk in, and the first thing somebody says is, "God, what is that smell?" and he's covering his nose. And this is, you know, when I'm treating them to, a, you know, a meal. And that really hurt me. Like I was still very much affected by that. And I remember that I apologized. Oh, I'm so sorry for the smell. So even then, even after all that I had learned and you know how much more confidence I had gained, my instinct was still to cover up my food. And so that instinct, something that I learned from my parents, unfortunately, just through you know a survival instinct, assimilative instinct is not easy to overcome, but that's one of the reasons I love doing what I do now with the Korean vegan and the cookbook is that it challenges everyone, but it also challenges me every day to remain proud of who I am and the food that I grew up eating.
2: Hmm. I'm not surprised to hear that you had creative writing as a class because your writing and your storytelling is exquisite, which ultimately the TikToks and the narrative in the cookbook, it's all storytelling, it comes down to. Joanna, I had to smile. My personal reference was not as much of a contrast, but as a child, I shared some of what you felt because in my household... We didn't have white bread. We didn't have wonder bread. We had kosher rye bread with seeds or challah. And I used to think my sandwiches just looked so foreign. Cold cuts, corned beef. Why couldn't I have bologna on white bread with mayonnaise like normal kids had? And I was thinking while reading your book how fortunate we are now to be in a time when we feel it's safe enough, even though there may be pushback, even though we may encounter some nasty stereotypes uttered, it's safe enough to come forward with our heritage, not only share stories through cuisine, as you do, but to feel proud of it.
0: Isn't it funny? Because I went through the same thing, Lois, as you did. Like, I would demand that my grandmother packed me white bread with bologna and to her, she must've been like, why do you want to eat that? Like
2: really? that's not bread.
0: Like that's what it like. I'm packing you good food and you want bologna. And it's just, that's the irony, but I agree with you, Lois. I think that there is an audience out there that is so welcoming of cultural foods of foods that help to shape our identity that want to hear the stories beneath the food that give us that sort of safety that I think is necessary for us to feel proud and to flourish uh, along with our food, to innovate around some of our cultural foods. and, And of course, to share the stories that go along with that. And that is, you know, one of the most rewarding aspects about what I do is this community that sprang up around me, again, largely accidental, that's, you know, sitting here never tried kimchi, never tried daenjang before, but so excited to do so.
2: Popular TikTok chef and author Joanne Lee Molinaro. Her new cookbook is The Korean Vegan, We'll return with more of our conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. Thank you for joining me. If you are just tuning in, We've been listening back to my November conversation with Joanne Lee Molinaro, author of the cookbook Korean Vegan. Molinaro became a star on the social video app TikTok, where she shares vegan recipes, techniques, and stories about food to her followers, who now number nearly three million. Korean vegan. For many of us, an introduction to Korean food, if it isn't via kimchi, is Korean barbecue. All of this fabulous beef prepared over the sizzling grill at your table. Would you talk about what must seem a contradiction in terms with Korean vegan? <laughs> well, I used to think it was a contradiction in terms, too.
0: <laughs> when the idea of going vegan was first posed to me by my then boyfriend, now husband, I basically was like, no, that's not possible. I'm Korean. <laughs> I, I didn't think it was possible. And of course, what that did was it evinced a complete naivete and ignorance of what Korean cuisine really is. It is largely vegetables and plant centric, you know, these panchans, which are these side dishes, they're all vegetables and beans and plant foods that may be marinated in fish sauce and things like that. But that's really the only thing that kind of takes it out of the vegan realm. You know, grilled meat, which is the Korean barbecue, certainly among the most popular Korean foods here in the United States because Korea was such a poor country for much of its existence, meat wasn't something that was very regularly on the dinner table, certainly not at my house. We were mostly vegetables and occasionally, you know, some meat dishes and fish dishes. So if you really sort of dig a little and pull that thread, you'll find that in actuality, Korean cuisine is certainly not one-dimensional enough to simply encapsulate grilled meat. And also, in my opinion, you take some of that Korean barbecue sauce and pour it over some mushrooms, some eggplant, some bok choy, whatever you want, it's going to taste just as delicious. You're not going to miss the meat. Trust me, I've done it many times now. It's really much more about the flavor, the sauces, and the textures.
2: Though you note that it took some experimentation before you could find the right substitute or alternative for fish sauce.
0: Oh, it sure did. Uh, I will say... I think fish sauce was the first thing that I was like, okay, I got to come up with something for this because it is so prevalent in Korean cooking, and also because it is a fundamental component of kimchi, which, in my mind, far more than you know, grilled. meat is synonymous with Korean cuisine. And I knew that you needed to have fish sauce for the proper fermentation of kimchi. So it was actually one of the first things that I set out to veganize. And there's a lot that goes into fish sauce. It's not just a fishy flavor. You also need to make sure that it has the properties of fermentation to facilitate the proper pickling of kimchi. And it's got to have that sort of deep umaminess on top of the fishiness um, in order to really pack the punch that is required for some of these stews that rely heavily on fish sauce. So there's a lot that goes into it, but I will say one of the proudest moments was when I gave it to my mother and she kind of looked at me and she was like, this is excellent. How did you do this? And that made me very happy.
2: (laughs) I can imagine. And how long did it take you To learn about the little but important things like fermentation and how long that takes and how you do it without fish sauce.
0: We had like a two day period where, you know, my mom and my two aunts and my cousin, they all came over to my house and we started making kimchi and we were in the kitchen experimenting with kind of different ways of doing it. We had like three different batches going on at the same time. And really it was my way, my mother's younger brother's wife. There's a title for everyone in Korean. My Mo, she learned so much from her own mother about kimchi making. And now is the right time to talk about it because right now is kimchi making season, right? And she learned so much and she shared so much of that incredible knowledge with all of us. And through that process, we were able to put together a recipe that I'm very proud of. My mother just a couple of months ago, she was having some of the quote vegan kimchi and she was so impressed with how it withstood time much better than regular kimchi. And she said, you know what? I I think I'm just gonna use this recipe going forward because it's fresher, it's just brighter. It doesn't go sour as quickly as regular kimchi. It just maintains this really crispy, crunchy deliciousness for much longer. And yeah, again, when your mom tells you that something that you may taste really good, there's very little that you can be
2: more proud of. Oh, I know. And mom, grandmother, I hope you have time to just share a couple more stories in terms of recipes you've received from your parents and grandparents, particularly the chocolate sweet potato cake.
0: Yeah, so the chocolate sweet potato cake was really kind of my attempt to pay respect to my mother and my mother's parents. My mother was a refugee from North Korea. She was born in North Korea. Her parents were born in the region that is now known as North Korea. And they fled their village right at the beginning of the Korean War. You know, obviously they were told they needed to evacuate their village because they were under attack. And so they, you know, packed up their things. My grandparents had two little girls. then; My mother was one year old and they walked over to the Yellow Sea where they were told there would be a U.S. Navy ship waiting to take them to safety. It took them two weeks to get to the Yellow Sea. And by that time, their infant daughter, my mother, was starving uh, to death you know, they didn't have food. Like, it's not like they had like, you know, lunchables to take with them on this journey. So they had no more food and my mom was starving and there, it was a very harried time. Um, They almost decided to drown my mother because they didn't know how else to handle her agony from starving. Luckily they were saved from doing so. An American GI provided them with a chocolate bar And it was because of that chocolate bar that my mom didn't die. Um, And she had something to sustain her uh, through the trip to the Southern region of Korea. When they got to the Southern region of Korea, they were homeless. My mother was a refugee. My grandparents were refugees. Their first daughter were refugees. And they were literally going from home to home, knocking on the doors, begging for scraps of food for a place to sleep at night, even if it was in their like farm and, um, My mom used to tell me when she was a little girl growing up, one of her favorite things to do would be to run out at night in the middle of the night after the fields had been harvested and dig through the soil to find whatever leftover rotten grubby pieces of sweet potatoes had been left behind because they weren't good enough for the harvest. And she would just sit there and she would eat them raw in the middle of the night because she was so hungry. And that was her favorite thing to do. So this chocolate cake with, you know, sweet potato frosting, it was really uh, an attempt to kind of again pay homage to the two things that saved my mother's life, which was that chocolate bar and the sweet potatoes she
2: ate when she was growing up. You also celebrate that chocolate bar with s'mores
0: (laughs) that is that is correct that's not in my cookbook but it is (laughs) on my tiktok Uh, i love that you know somebody had challenged me to do a food video that really showed the story of my mother's survival and i was like well what better way to do that than a chocolate bar, but also the decadence of a S'mores bar, which really was meant to represent kind of you know, where we are as a family now. We're safe. We don't have to worry about where we're going to get our next meal anymore. We're together. We're all healthy. And in many ways, those are luxurious.
2: Mm. Finally, the TikToks by definition are very brief, and you have the talent to boil down a compelling story to a very brief period. Many of the Korean dishes seem labor-intensive, however. Should we be intimidated by that, Joanne?
0: I can understand why someone might be intimidated. It's not just that some of these recipes may require more steps, but a lot of them require, you know, a lot of ingredients and ingredients that the average person may not be familiar with, like tinjang or 고춧가루 or even kochujang. These are words that are not only difficult to pronounce for some people, but They don't even know what it looks like, right? So I think that it's understandable to be intimidated. However... I would say that there are so many recipes in Korean cooking that literally are like five ingredients, you know, because they are these panchans I I spoke of, these side dishes or garnishes that are designed to be very simple and really intended to prolong the longevity of that particular vegetable, right? Pickling is really about how can we make this food last longer? Because spoiling is like the anathema for people who are hungry all the time because they're poor. So that's really what kimchi was meant to do is to provide food for a much longer period of time because I know, Korean people, again, it was, it was a fairly poor country for so much of its existence. So add a little salt, a little bit of this and that, and you got yourself a beautiful kimchi, you got yourself a beautiful muchim or a seasoned vegetable, a dressed vegetable. What I like to do in my cookbook is I actually categorized every single recipe in the book as easy, medium, and practice makes perfect, which is my encouraging way of saying this one's hard. <laughs> so and. It's been so joyous, Lois, to see so many people who literally have no idea what Korean cuisine is about. Say, I just made jjigae today and it's absolutely delicious. Or I made the kale muchim and I'm going to eat this every single day now. It's so doable. You just need to kind of like get your feet wet, get in there and sort of try it. And you'll realize just how unintimidating it
2: can quickly become the popular TikTok chef, and author Joanne Lee Molinaro. Her cookbook is The Korean Vegan. More information about Joanne and her cookbook is available on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture, Monday at 11 a.m., WABE celebrates the national holiday with a Memorial Day special. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelly Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzis. We'd love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at W-A-B-E City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at l o i s. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta.